Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome to episode five of my Some Good Mavericks micro series, Outdoor Voices. This is a lockdown series that interrogates people who work outdoors. I have always been interested in what we now call the great outdoors, in being outside in nature. As a child, my siblings and I were chucked out of the house by our parents as soon as breakfast was over and essentially expected only to return for mealtimes and then eventually bedtime. And that was absolutely formative in not only my experience as a child, but then when I had children myself, I very much started to replicate that. Caroline, my wife that is, and I wrote the Family Guide to the Great Outdoors for Random House in 2012. And we have the Glendive Cabins and Cottages business, which is very much rooted in the remote beauty of the Highlands. And our festival, the Good Life Experience, has a strong emphasis on being outdoors. And all of these things feed from my childhood. So I thought that it would be interesting to make a small series of podcasts that asked people who work outdoors why they worked outdoors. And this, as I say, is episode five of this series. Now, this has been recorded during lockdown, so I sent the questions to the people who have answered and just asked them to speak into their phone. It's actually turned out to be a good system for creating podcasts. Not only, of course, has it allowed me to record a large number of podcasts during lockdown, this is my 26th podcast during lockdown, which I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. But I think more relevantly, it has allowed people to answer in a different way. When you're talking to people face to face, there tends to be, certainly for me, a lot of sort of body language and and head nodding that encourages people to give answers. This is more reflective, I think, of the individual. Anyway, everyone that I asked to come back to me has come back to me. And I was thrilled that David White of The Whitlings came back to me with some long and deeply considered answers. You can find David White either at The Good Life Experience or on Instagram at The Whitlings. He uses green wood to make all manner of utensils from bowls and spoons, cups and trays, and also does wood workshops. So here is David introducing himself. My name's David White. I'm um, a green woodworker. So that means using wood when it's fresh um, and straight from the tree usually and the idea being that you can take the wood make things by hand while the wood's still really soft let it dry and then give it a final finish and it's um, good to go it saves using machines so my background's kind of design and photography i suppose and then i gravitated toward the food industry Um, and from there really um, started making bits and stuff for tableware for restaurants and eventually had the confidence to do that full-time so now i'm full-time making tableware for restaurants generally sort of michelin starred restaurants where the dishes are very thought through and i'll work with a chef to um, specifically make one dish and design a tableware around a dish which is um, really good fun i'm in the woods today collecting materials the nature of my job really suits being outside it's um somewhat messy just um constantly removing wood down to a desired size starting with a chainsaw and working down to carving tools so 
I think being outside and being near the wood source is, is critical rather than trying to transport a lot of wood back to home all the time. I'm lucky enough to work outside most of the year. I have a workshop at home which has kind of fold-out sides, so it's always semi-outdoors and only really on the very coldest days in winter um, do I need to close the sides, but generally they're open. Um, I also work in the woods, so I'll often, anything that requires just hand-tool work, I'll try and be in the woods as often as I can. That means I'm close to the materials and it's also really inspiring and really relaxing just being outside when you can. Thank you very much, David. Um, Jamie Corrie raised the question earlier in this series as to whether it was nature or nurture that made us love the outdoors. In, in my experience, I think that it was very much nurture. In the, as I said earlier in this edition, my parents forced us outside and that slowly worked its way into me. And I asked all of my interviewees whether they'd enjoyed being outdoors all of their lives and this is what David said. When we were kids I think the first major interaction with outdoors was uh, my parents dragging us to the Lake District um, every Easter regardless of the weather. So occasionally it was sunny, more often it was raining and occasionally it was kind of deep in snow but the idea was just to get as many hills walked as we could during a week and um, Although we sort of sometimes were reluctant to do that and took a bit of bribing, it was definitely formative. We definitely really got a lot from that looking back. Although the height of technology for walking gear back then was um, these kind of portable tents, a bit like a poncho, which was called a cagoule. And it came down to your knees and was pretty good sail, really, and incredibly unbreathable. But um, yeah, that, that was the kind of height of technology. Right, well, thank you very much indeed to David. We will come back to you later in this series. Now, you may remember Murdo, the gamekeeper and wildlife conservationist advocate who is based in Scotland. Um, what I wanted to find out from him was how winter in the Highlands affects him. At Glendye, winter can be pretty brutal. Uh, it is not only very, very cold, but it's also extremely dark. I find the darkness far more wearing than the cold. I, li I like the cold, in fact. And um, anyway, I asked Murdo what he felt about the cold, and this was his fairly direct answer. A bitter cold day for me is when the snot in your nose freezes. So until it's that point, it's just, I prefer being out on a cold day than being out on a day like today when it's 25 degrees. When it's cold and dry, everything's so much cleaner and tidier than it is when it's a warm, wet day. So it's just my version of a hot summer's day, if you like. I wanted to find out from Murdo whether, as a gamekeeper, he felt under threat. He does touch in his answer that I'll play to you in a moment on this bit about the city versus the countryside. Now, it's an uncomfortable truth that a lot of people in the countryside do feel marginalised. I think they feel judged by people in the city. 
They often feel profoundly neglected by politicians. And I think that they also feel that a number of instructions as to how they should live and what they should do are dictated to them by people who have never spent time in the countryside. However you look at it, the countryside and the city or an urban environment are very different things. The daily concerns, the knowledge, the way you go about your life every day is very different depending on where you live. And so this is Murdo talking a little bit about whether he feels under threat from those who don't necessarily know what he's doing. You do feel very, very much a minority now. And you're certainly, I don't know whether it's because the urban population think they've got a better understanding because of all the kind of spring watch programmes and autumn watch programmes and they think they understand because of certain people voicing their opinion louder than the voice we've got and that makes them think that they know better than what we've been doing for generations. You can take one of the game species if you wanted as an example but to use an example of a, any kind of conservation project where it was a species that's vulnerable. A certain amount of management which is because we live in such a small country, would be artificial to what would be in place naturally. But to get the result of protecting a certain species, regardless of what it is, you have to apply a certain amount of management, and that involves doing whatever that species requires to flourish. So whether it's protecting it from predation, or, protecting it, or, or providing it the environment for it to thrive, from food sources, you have to apply it. It doesn't matter if it's white rhinos in Africa or blue tits in somewhere else. It, that's what you have to do. And I think that the public, given the exposure that they get from various programmes, they fail to realise that. And you can look at any, any situation in this country now a prime example is a Capercaillie in Scotland. There's millions of pounds spent on it, but there isn't the correct management in place because certain people deem it not effective and not morally right to do it. But you just pay the price of losing a species. So one of the questions that I asked Murdo was whether he enjoyed being by himself. A lot of his work is solitary. And actually his answer then ran into something fascinating, which is about the impact of lockdown on nature. There is no question, looking around the land at Glendie in Scotland, and indeed at Harden in Wales, that this has been a very, very good year for wildflowers and bird life. And we have indeed at Glendie for the first time in probably 20 or maybe even 25 years seen Capercaillie back in the woods around Glendie. How much of this is to do with lockdown? I, I don't know the answer to that, but there is clear empirical evidence that this has been a good spring. I mean, we have never seen foxgloves in the proliferation that we're seeing them at the moment. You can apply that to almost all wildflowers. So something is in the air. And I, I mean, I just seriously wonder whether that's a, a pollution thing, 
whether it's pollution from cars on the road or from the air, I just don't know. But this has definitely been the brightest spring that we have, I think I'm going to say, ever had. And by ever, I mean in the last 30 years at Glendie and at Harden. And, and it must have something to do with this lockdown. Anyway, here is Murdo talking first about isolation and then the impact of the lockdown. It's a very solitary job, but it's also, at times, you need people around you. You need a team of some kind. Day to day it might be solitary, but at certain times of year it, it just doesn't function without a team. And the case I'm in now, um, it's just a small unit only requiring really one member of staff, but for seasonal help. Um, but as a unit gets bigger, when you to achieve your objectives, have to employ more people, which involves working as a team alongside each other. And I mean, this period of a COVID outbreak is certainly, some people don't agree, but nature's managed to get on so much happier without us. Have you yeah. noticed that, that oh. in Scotland? Oh. Without the walkers and, and all oh. the people on the I mean, whether it's the wildlife themselves, you're seeing a lot more smaller birds at the roadside because there's just not the continued plod of people. The shepherd had the best lambing out the hill because his sheep were just left in peace. Um, and it, it's, it's not a selfish thing. People are welcome, but they just have to be aware. It's almost, I think the COVID thing's almost... There's been so much kindness and thoughtfulness by a lot of people but it very much has demonstrated how arrogant the people are. They want it regardless of, to the point that if you can't have it, they still want it. They want this back to norm, and it ain't going to be back to norm. Thank you, Murdo. I find it so fascinating that the minute lockdown was eased, people flooded to rural areas. Um, there was suggestion in Scotland that people might want to stay within five miles of home, but that definitely wasn't adhered to at Glendie because we are pretty much not within five miles of anyone's home. And what this proves to me is that people want to come to the countryside. And I think there's a deep and really profound need for us to, to spend time in the countryside. Anyway, thank you very much to Murdo for doing this for me. Now, do you remember Angus and Lily of the Bridge Lodge? They have appeared in a couple of earlier episodes, and I just wanted to find out their feelings about life in the city. I think that they both met in Oxford when they studied at Oxford Brooks, and so I asked them whether they had ever lived in the city, and this was Angus's answer, followed immediately by Lily. We did go to the University of Oxford Brookes for three years, where I studied history of art and Lily history and film. We did really enjoy living in Oxford. It was a beautiful place, um, but we always knew we wanted to move back to the countryside after we had graduated. And moving to Wales, moved back for Lily's case um, to set up our food, seasonal food company just seemed a natural progression getting back to nature and immersing ourselves in the countryside. Even though Oxford is a small city and it's in the middle of the countryside, I really missed Wales. Um, I'm so happy here. 
Um, I'm much more at home in the countryside and I enjoy the buzz of cities every now and again, but I'm definitely more myself and happy when I'm in the green countryside. And we will come back to Angus and Lily in the final episode. So that is the end of episode five. Thank you very much to David. Thank you very much to Murdo. Thank you very much to Angus and Lily. I'll be back straight away with episode six, which is the final in this short series. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the contributors again. Thanks to my friend Jim Friend for his outstanding editing work. This is quite a complicated series to put together. And I will see you very soon, if not immediately. Thanks. Bye.